What up, Danny? How's it going, Tyler? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Just, you know, glad we're sitting here in a house <laughs> not built by Jack. That we're aware of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just going to start the next episode of Fried Squirms. And we're talking about some Lars Von Trier, some house that Jack built. We're going to have to get stoned for this one. <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> Which is good because we have come equipped. That's true. That's true. So we're still a little bit out from the untethering. <laughs> I sounds like a good name for a horror film, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I don't have anything new to bring to the table. I brought some J's of some silver tip. I've went on about silver tip in the past because it is my so favorite good, strain man. right now. It is Super Silver Haze crossed with Granddaddy Perp. Oh, nice. Hell yeah. That's the parent strains, so that's kind of what you're getting. It's wonderful. It's amazing. What did you bring? So something <laughs> I brought before, once again, nothing new, but the J's that I brought are from uh, the strain Cocoa Puffs. Oh, okay. Another one of those sativas, so it's going to have a little bit of an earthy, a little bit of a chocolatey flavor. Not a whole lot, but more or less on that earth note. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to fire up some yeah. of those Cocoa Puffs right now while we get into the guts and bolts of this bitch. <laughs> and then we'll get on to wow. how this made us squeal. I'm really excited. <laughs> guts and bolts. All right. Guts and bolts. Now that we got these J's fired up. That's also pretty fire. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, dude. No problem. Let's see. Guts and bolts. We like to stay spoiler free introduce you into who and what made this movie before we get into talking about it but first a synopsis this one's easy the synopsis is fucking simple watching the movies a little bit <laughs> more complex yeah. but the synopsis is matt Dillon is a serial killer who's been operating in the pacific northwest for at least 12 years and this is him defending his view that what he does is art by explaining through five of his incidents to Virgil as he's being escorted through hell. Which I don't think is... That's, that's not, not a spoiler, because no, as soon not. as you know his name's Virgil, you should know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, which we'll talk about. There's a lot of nods to literary works and what have you, so... Yeah, I like it. Nice, brief, simple synopsis without getting into spoilers. If you're mentioning, we do like to talk about our cast and crew from week to week. You've already mentioned our director, and that gentleman is Lars von Trier. And for those who are not familiar, some of his early works include the films The Element of Crime, the films Epidemic, the film Europa, which I think went by Zentropa here in the United mm. States. Then he went on to do uh, some really cool films, such things as The Idiots, even though it went uncredited, he did direct that. The very first Von Trier film I watched... Because that was one of the Dogma in 95, wasn't it? It was. So it had to go uncredited. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and then the very first Lars Von Trier film that I ever watched, actually, coincidentally enough, with my sister, because she's a huge Bjork fan, is we watched Dancer in the Dark together. I think we watched that probably like back in 2001 and two-ish, somewhere around there. Then he went on to do such films as Dogville, a film I've seen once again as Antichrist. He did the film Melancholia, Nymphomaniac Volumes 1 and 2. And it looks like the he does have an upcoming short film called Etudes. So that's um, exciting. If you aren't familiar with Von Trier, we should mention that this is a guy... It's not like this is his only foray into horror, but what he's known for is... Art. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, his films are art pieces. 
Exactly. You can consider this art house, high art, what have you. Mm. Yeah, it definitely fits in that building. So in some way, this is a lot more refined touch than the genre usually gets. But then when you look at his body of work, some may argue that it is a very unrefined touch as well. Or controversial, taboo, dirty touch. <laughs> this well, is these... Uncle Bad Touch. <laughs> I was like, yeah, his films definitely leave you with um, some kind of feeling, some kind of way. Let's put it that way. Moving along, he is one half of a writing team because along with Lars, we have Jean-Louis Holland, and uh, they're responsible for helping with the You Are Beautiful short story. We have cinematographer Manuel Alberto Claro, who has helped on the films Melancholia and Nymphomaniacs Volumes 1 and 2. We have a couple of editors on this film. We have Jakob Sescher Solusinger, who's helped on Nymphomaniacs Volume 1 and 2, the films The Untamed and The Square. And we also have Molly Meline Stenskard, who helped with Dancer in the Dark, Melancholia, and Nymphomaniacs Volume 1 and 2. The music was composed by Victor Reyes, actually a gentleman we've talked about before, because of episode 139 of The Fried Squirms, which involved a doubleheader of some American remakes of the films Inside and Martyrs from 2015. So we've actually talked about them before. Fucking Inside and Martyrs. Yeah, he did Inside, so it's probably the lesser of two two evils. But he's also responsible for composing the music for the films Buried. He's gone on to compose the music for Grand Piano. You might have heard his music in such films as Cold Skin, Perfect Strangers, Trading Paint and Finding Steve McQueen. And he's also done various television works as well, mostly in Spanish. Mm. All right. We have special effects teams. They were BUF and TGB visual effects teams. This was produced by Louise Vest. Production companies are way too many to list. If you are curious, uh, you can look them up on the database. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. There's like 12 or 13 of them. Uh, it's just a little ridiculous. All right, distributors were Trust Nordisk. They help with the 2018 media for all the worldwide, and IFC Films helped with the 2018 United States theatrical release. It had release dates on May 14, 2018, at the Cannes Film Festival in France, and November 28, 2018. It actually had a one-night screening for the director's cut, so it was very limited. Mm-hmm. I thought about going to see it that night, but never did. But oh, I, I remember up, that. Yeah. I remember that. I was like, ah, I wanted to, but it's like, it's almost a three hour film, dude. Yeah, dude. I mean, looking awesome. back on it, like, I kind of wish we both would have went. Yeah. I, I know what you mean, you know, but it's okay. We're here today. Yeah. 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 Finally got to see it. So. Exactly. You've still seen it before me, but we'll get to all that. Yeah. So we have a budget of 8.7 million euros which translates to about 9.4 million dollars here in the states and it grossed worldwide numbers were 5.6 million dollars all right so moving along I'm going to talk about the cast we have a star studded cast which it's not unfamiliar when you look at the bodies of work with Von Trier he always has big actors and actresses in his films but well okay this is a star studded cast yeah. but I do want to point out that there's three people that are usually brought up. Mm-hmm. One of them is in the movie for about four minutes. Yeah. There's some that are in it just for blips. Yeah. I, I think you know who I'm thinking of immediately. Incident one? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. So we have Matt Dillon, who you've already mentioned, who plays the role of Jack in this film. And for those who are not familiar, 
with Matt Dillon. He's actually one of those guys I really enjoy. It started off really, really early for me because I am a fan of Essie Hinton, and she has written some of the stories that got adapted to film, which include Tex, which he was a part of, The Outsiders, if you've never seen that, Rumblefish, which is a really fucking good film. Then he went on to do such things as The Flamingo Kid, and then I've seen him in Drugstore Cowboy, which is a good film. Yeah, fucking, like, growing up, one of my best friends growing up, Angus, he didn't read near. I, I read a shit ton. He didn't read nearly as much as me, but one of the only books I do remember him reading, I believe, was Rumblefish, and he really liked it's it. Good. I never read it myself. Like, I was reading everything else in the world, and this yeah. one thing, he was like, oh, dude, I really like this. Like, now I feel bad I didn't yeah, read it. Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola actually directed the film adaptation. Oh, it's really good, dude. I highly recommend it. Visually stunning, too, which makes perfect sense. But some of the other films that Matt Dillon is known for. One I, I think a lot of people overlook. It's a fucking brilliant film. It's called The Saint of Fort Washington. He did with Danny Glover. Really, really good film. And then I think some of the roles that really got him back into things were There's Something About Mary. Yep. He was in Wild Things, One Night at McCool's, Deuces Wild, which is a really good film. He went on to do such things as Crash. You might have seen him in uh, Herbie Fully Loaded, perhaps. Uh, you, me, and Dupree. <laughs> yep. Uh, he's done such films as Old Dogs. Uh, you might have seen him in Bad Country, Wayward Pines. Some other films more recently uh, are some films like Running for Grace, uh, Proxima and Capone. And he's also done little television spots here and there. Not very many, mostly in film. All right. Moving along, we have Emil Thorstrup, who plays the young Jack in some of the flashback sequences. He's done some television work, mostly Danish. So some of those include Until We Fall, which is a Danish film, and Pros and Cons, which was a television series in 2018. We have Bruno Gans, who plays the role of Verge, Virgil, <laughs> in this. A Swiss actor known for a lot of German films, German-speaking language films. But if you look at some of his works, they include such things as Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht, which is Nosferatu the Vampire. Right. Uh, he was Jonathan Harker in that. That's the, the Werner yeah. Herzog. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah, and then he was in such things as The Last Day of Chenu. Then he was in such things as Luther, The Manchurian Candidate. He was also in Have No Fear, which is the life of Pope John Paul II. He was in Youth Without Youth. And The Reader, I know he played Adolf Hitler in a film, too. So it's just kind of funny that, <laughs> you know, you see all this iconography with that shit. So uh, he's been in some of those types of films as well. Wait, was that's why I fucking recognized him. He's downfall Hitler. Yeah. He's not just any Hitler. Dude, he's the memed Hitler. That's awesome. Have it? you seen any of the downfall memes? I probably have, but I just don't recognize them. It's, not by it's, name. It's hard to do. And it, like, it's not just a picture. Like, there's a bunch of them. It was viral videos. Okay. Where. Oh. It was. It's more like Michael Jackson and shit. Is that like. It's his scene in Downfall where he's Hitler and he's getting fucking mad in the bunker yep. and, like, orders the people out so that he can, like, say some shit to only his officers being like, this is bullshit, guys. Except they just replace the subtitles right, right, right. with... And I think I've seen various ones. Now that you mentioned that, I didn't realize it was him. Yeah, that's him. That is fucking that's hilarious. Him. I have seen those now that you mention it, now thinking about it, because it's Holy mostly in the shit. video form. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen a couple of those. That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> That's good to know, though. As uh, soon as you said he played Hitler, I, I was like, oh, shit. Oh, he's downfall Hitler. He's not just any Hitler. Yeah, that's video meme Hitler. <laughs> All right, moving along, we have Uma Thurman, who plays the role of Lady One. Some of her early roles, believe it or not, this is a film I watched a lot. 
back in the 80s, and that was Johnny B. Good. She went on to do such films as Robin Hood. She played Maid Marian. It wasn't the Kevin Costner film. <laughs> it was the, the, he wasn't in that. But uh, she also did such films as Henry and June. You might have seen her in Jennifer 8, which is actually a really good film. And one of her biggest roles, of course, is in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. She also did the film The Truth About Cats and Dogs, which is not bad. She went on to play Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin. She was which in the, is bad. <laughs> yeah, not the greatest. I, I mean, I, it was all right. I, I liked it, but it's not great. She was also in the film Gattaca. Gattaca. Yeah, Gattaca. The Miserable. She was in The Avengers. You might have also, seen her. Gattaca is a fucking bomb movie. It is good. I was 10 when that movie came out. I probably watched it when I was 11. That movie's really advanced for an 11-year-old, and I still fucking loved it. I rented that movie like 20 fucking times and rewatched it. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Nice, man. All right, some uh, some other big roles that she was in because she played the bride, Beatrix Kiddo in Kill Bill's Volume 1 and 2. You might have also seen her in such films as Be Cool. She was also in My Super Ex-Girlfriend. She was in the film Percy Jackson in The Olympians, The Lightning Thief as Medusa. She was in Movie 43, Nymphomaniac. More recently, she was in The Con Is On, Down a Dark Hall, and some other stuff upcoming looks like The War with Grandpa, which is really neat. And she's done a couple episodes of such television shows as Slap and Imposter, so little spots here and there in television. All right, we have Actress. Now, if you look at the way it's spelled, I had to look it up. That's what I was doing earlier, because like, I don't know how the hell oh. you pronounce that. I didn't know who you were looking up, because this is one of the names that I actually could have told you. Yeah, I've had to look Siobhan. up this name before. <laughs> yeah. I was like, there's no way I would have said that. Siobhan Fallenhogan. <laughs> yeah, I was like, there's no way I would have gotten that first try. All right, but she's known for being in such films as Greedy. She was in the film Forrest Gump as Dorothy Harris. She was in Jury Duty. Probably the most famous, I think, Men in Black. I fucking yeah. squealed when I saw her in this because I was like, awesome. it's like he was wearing a Egger suit. <laughs> <laughs> she was also in such films as Striptease. You might have seen that. She was in Fool's Rush In, The Negotiator, pretty decent film. She was in Dancer in the Dark. She was also in Big Trouble, Holes, which is a really good Disney film, dude. I know you've seen yeah. it. She was also in such things as Fever Pitch. P to the T. She was in a remake of a film I really enjoy from a director I really enjoy, and that is Funny Games by Michael Hinke. Austrian filmmaker. So it's a remake of his late 90s version. It's almost like Shot for Shot remake. Okay. All right. She was also in such films as Baby Mama. You might have seen her in the films We Need to Talk About Kevin, Going in Style, Private Life, and The Professor. And like, so once again, she was, uh, looks like she did various skits in Saturday Night Live hmm. from 91 through 92. She's done a couple of episodes of like Rescue Me. She was in Fred the Show. Yeah, more recently, she was in American Gods as the airport lady in the episode The Bone Orchard. She was also in the uh, television series oh, Elementary. Shit, she was. That's funny. Okay. Yeah, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. She was in the episode of Animal Control back in 2019. Yeah. Cool. I, that's another series I actually need to get involved with. Really enjoy the film. All right. We have actress Sophie Grobel, who plays the role of Lady Three. Now, she is a Danish actress. She was more well-known because of the American remake of the show, The Fall, which is really good. So if you haven't seen it, I believe that was a Netflix series. I'd say check that out. But some of her filmography include the films Pan. She was in the film The Killing Us. She was actually in cameo appearance in Absolutely Fabulous, The Day Will Come, The Time of the Year, and more recently in the film Gentleman Jack. All right, we have actress Riley Keough. She plays the role of Simple in this film. Now, 
I did see this film. I know who she is now in the film, but uh, she was in the film Runaways as Mary Curry, one half of the sister duo in that band. Uh, oh, she, yeah. yeah, she was also in the film Jack and Diane. She was in the film Magic Mike. You might have seen her in Mad Max Fury Road. This is really cool. She was in the films American Honey, Love Song. She was in The Discovery, Logan Lucky. She was in the film It Comes at Night, which is one I've seen about half of. I need to finish it. She was also in a film I highly recommend. It was the last film I saw in the theaters before all this COVID stuff was happening. Oh, okay. But that film is The Lodge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I keep hearing people talk about that. I'm going to have to finally give it a good, fucking try. Man. And she was also in the television series The Girlfriend Experience for 13 episodes because she played the lead role of Christine Reed. All right. A GFE is a little bit more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt, right? We have Jeremy Davies, who's no stranger to this show, because we have talked about him on episode 41. Because he was in Hannibal Season 2 for a few episodes. I was so excited to see him. I know. That was so awesome. And he was also in a really popular film that we both enjoy. And when I say popular, it's popular amongst us. And that is Ravenous. Yeah. But some of his other film credits include such things as Spanking the Monkey. He actually was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Debut Performance. He was in the film Nell, which is, man... (laughs) Good film, but holy shit, you can make a lot of fun of that film. He was also in the film Twister. You might have seen him in Saving Private Ryan. He was in the film's Secretary, which is actually pretty sexy. He was in the film Solaris, Dogville, which is another Von Trier film. It's kind of a funny story. Rescue Dawn in Justice League Dark. He voiced Richie Simpson. He's done some television spots for such things as The Laramie Project. He was Charles Manson in Helter Skelter, which I think we've mentioned before on the previous episodes. Uh, He was also in Justified for 20 episodes. He was also in American Gods as Jesus Prime. He's one of the Jesuses in, uh, I think it's the season finale of the first season. If it's not the season finale, it's the episode right before. But there's an Easter party at, like, Easter. Like, Easter the goddess's Uh, place. And she invites all of the Jesuses. (laughs) That's like funny. when you think about it, there's all these different interpretations of Jesus. Absolutely. So they all show up, including you don't see it, but like somebody mentions that like one of the Jesuses is riding a Velociraptor or something. Like that's hilarious. <laughs> Speaking of memes, right? Right. That's fucking hilarious. All right. Now Jeremy's also been in such shows as Sleepy Hollow as Malcolm Dreyfus for 13 episodes. Something I did watch. I'm a huge fan of his Twin Peaks. He played uh, the role of Jimmy in episode six in the 2017. Showtime series. He was also in The Flash for an episode, Arrow, and Supergirl for episodes. And more recently, he was in The Rookie for an episode entitled Handoff. And some people might recognize his voice because he was the strange and Baldur in God of War. And yeah, he, won. he actually won a fucking award for that That's shit. pretty dope. And man. he did the motion capture for Baldur, too. There you go. It's pretty sweet. All right, moving ahead, I have actor Jack McKenzie. He plays the role of Sonny. Now, some of the film credits I have him include A Bridge Too Far. He was in Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, and the film Gandhi. So some pretty big titles there, man. All right, there's another gentleman who's in it real briefly. I think he's in uh, The Incident Number 4 with Simple. This is actor Ed Spielers. He plays Ed, the police officer, which is kind of weird. He's been in such things as Aragon. You might have seen him in the films Plastic. 
And he was a part of Downton Abbey, the television series from 2012 through 2014. Oh shit, he was Aragon. Yeah. He's not just in Aragon. I think he, he also Aragon. like voiced it in the video game too, if oh, I'm not shit. mistaken. Okay. He was also in the films Howl, and more recently he was in Alice Through the Looking Glass, and the television series Outlander from 2018 through 2020. It seems really weird that Aragon was in this fucking movie. It's crazy, isn't it? You never know. All right, we have David Bailey who plays a role of S.P., and that's mm-hmm. towards the end of the film. Some of his film credits are some really cool ones. So he was in The Creeping Flesh, which starred Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and he was in the film Son of Dracula, Legend of the Werewolf, uh, Cutthroat Island. He was in Gladiator as Engineer. He was in all those Pirates of the Caribbean films because he played the role of Cotton. He was also in such things as The Comebacks. You might have seen him in The Timber. And more recently, he was in Darbar. And one How of his... I not recognize him? I've watched all those Pirates movies. I think you might enjoy this, knowing this. He was in the serial for Doctor Who for the Robots of Death, Death yeah. which is really dope. I have two more actors, and that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. I have actor Yu Jite, who is a South Korean actor. He's in it real briefly, dude. You have to really look, too. Yeah, he has he has a few lines, not very many. He's basically pleading for his life. Not really spoiling anything, but some of his film credits include such things as Attack of the Gas Station. He was in the film Nightmare. He was in a huge film, South Korean film, Old Boy. Yeah. Fuck, yeah. He was also in Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, oh, which, shit. coincidentally enough, are two films I just got in the mail recently, so pretty happy about that. He was also in the films Secret Love. You might have seen him in Human Trust. He was also in the film Split, The Swindlers, and more recently, the film Money. I love Old Boy. I need to actually watch the rest of that trilogy at some point. Yeah, I've got the last of the trilogy that's supposed to be coming in this week, uh, Sympathy for Mr. Revenge. So I'm looking forward to that, too. All right, the last but not least, I have actor O.C. Akeley. He plays the role of Military Man. It's like uh, right there towards the uh, end. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, and so some of his credits include such things as In the Heart of Sea. He was in Childhood End. He appeared in USS Callister and an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, that's uh, that's supposed to be a really good episode. I haven't watched any Black Mirror yet. but I've only seen, I think, three episodes, and that was from the first season. So I'm super duper behind, man. Yeah, USS Callister is like the Black Mirror take on Star Trek, from what I understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty dope, man. All right, well, yeah, like I said, that rounds out our cast and crew. You gave us a brief synopsis. We definitely should give you some warnings heading to this film. A lot of So if you already don't know that going into this film that Lars von Trier's name is in itself a warning. Uh, It really is. It's a trigger warning for a lot of people. I mean, you get all the shit you'd normally associate with serial killers, but, like, there's good gore. How did I see it? There's not only dead bodies, but shown the manipulation of bodies. There is child killing. Yeah, so there's child violence, so that's definitely going to tune a lot of people out. And then a constant reminder that a child got killed in a really creepy way. I know. (laughs) It is. It really is. If you have an aversion, of course, to a lot of a lot of female violence, violence towards women. Yeah, that's what I said. That's going to be a big turnoff. Gets called out, actually, but it does. It certainly does. Which is, I found refreshing, but weird. Yeah, like, I don't know. There are some mentions of you know, like religious connotations. There's depictions of mass genocide and things of that nature too. Oh yeah, um, there's 
depictions of violence against animals, Mm -hmm. both fake, but also through stock footage of old actual, like, hunting footage. Right, exactly. Nothing actually being harmed for the making of this film. No, no, no. But there is, like, real hunting footage, so. Right. God. Yeah, like you said. And then everything else is basically. Genocide (laughs) footage. Once again, stock footage. (sighs) Exactly, exactly. But there's Nazi imagery. Lots of that. And the whole point is that this guy is trying to, like, it's kind of just disturbing in its own right that this entire film is about a guy that's trying to argue that his serial killing is art. Right, right. And I mean, that's, you know, it's not really (laughs) spoiling anything either, but because there's a lot of dialogue about that throughout the Mm -hmm. film. Which I feel like they mostly use that to kind of touch on other things Mm -hmm. and just the nature of art in general, whether not just like serial killing. Right. Which we'll get into, but... That's kind of still just a disturbing thought. Like somebody, <laughs> somebody rationally just arguing this case. I so. know, man. Jeez. But if you made it this far and uh, <laughs> if you have seen it, you know exactly what we're talking about. But if you're still on the fence and uh, you're curious, we gave you several warnings. So there you go. Here's one other warning. We're not going to be able to explain this movie. I know, man. There's a, it's, we don't it's have, very deep. We don't have 10 hours no. to devote. And we didn't do a month of writing out no. what would end up having to be an essay to truly touch on all of the themes. I mean, we movie. literally had a week to prepare, and we're essential workers on top of it. <laughs> and you do another podcast on top of that. Because so. this was an arty flick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of things going on. So, I mean, we're going to try our best, no doubt. So but we'll see what we t- end up talking about today. But I, fucking, I bought this movie right away almost. I was telling you, I'm like... I have to have the unrated. <laughs> nice. I'm not going to wait for the physical to come in. I bought it digitally this morning so that I could just watch it right then. Yeah, right yeah, then. Sure. So I want to hear what all of you think about this movie. Right. This is definitely a discussion-heavy film. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. But let's get into The House That Jack Built. How does that make you squeal? All right. House That Jack Built. First, before we get into the movie itself... I should say, this is my first Lars von Trier movie. And there was something, when I was doing research on this movie, I saw a definite trend happening with people's comments. And this movie somehow ends up being a lot of people's first von Trier movie. Which I understand. This one's because of its notoriety. I think that's why I put it on the map for a lot of people. And then it sort of seemed to trend... Not every case, like I said, but definite noticeable trend that people that had followed Von Trier for a bit seemed to not like this too much and think it was overly self-indulgent with no real point. <laughs> and people who had only seen one or two of his flicks seemed to fucking love it and give it 9 or 10 out of 10. Okay. where I think that's where, probably where I fall in line. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I fucking love this movie. I think it's amazing. I do too. And, you know, of course, we'll get into that, but... But you also have more experience with Von Trier, and that's where I was going to go Not a whole lot, but that. a little bit, yeah. yeah. Like I had mentioned earlier, the first foray, and this was honestly unbeknownst to me at the time. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't know who he was. I just knew that we were watching a film that had Bjork in it. And, you know, after watching it, I was like, whoa, this movie is not one that it's... What we do, you know, between you and I is, you know, reviewing. So we have probably a little bit more propensity to watch a film more than once. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas some of Which these was, films are only like I'm one I'm not going to lie. 
I might be loving this movie, but with how long it was, yeah. this is a bit of a chore this week. Dude, two and a half hour early film. in the week yeah, to be likewise. able to fit it both in. You are not joking. And his films typically are kind of like that, you know, usually pretty long because they're so chock full of imagery and symbolism and you have it, whatever. So anyway, the first one was Dance in the Dark. That was one I've only seen one time. Mm-hmm. More recently, within the last two years, I watched Antichrist because it kept getting recommended from our friend Patrick and really enjoyed that film. Super dark, really bleak. And then when this film came out, we had mentioned we were both curious about seeing it for that one night release. And because I have a region free player, I wound up getting the region B version of this, the unrated version. So I kind of got a little bit of a head start on a lot of people here in the States. <laughs> but this is one that I did watch with my sister Ashley and Jeff as well. So The difference in the unrated and the rated cut is like two minutes. But who boy, those two minutes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I started watching a little bit of Rated on Showtime, and then I started thinking, it's like, do I really want to do this to myself where I'm watching both films kind of simultaneously mm-hmm. just to catch the differences? And I'm like, nah, I'm going to watch the unrated version. I'm just going to get the true version, I suppose. I also feel like it's unusual that the difference in a rated and unrated version is only two minutes long. But, but yeah, there's a lot to put in those two minutes. And not just only two minutes long, but only two minutes of a two-hour, 30-minute movie. <laughs> God. Yeah, I know, right? And yet, whew. <laughs> brutal. Yeah, well, yeah. Fucking yeah. brutal. God, where do we want to start with this? Oof. I mean, we can try to jump into the film if you if right? you'd like, and then... See what kind of goes from there. I know. I just, I'm trying to figure out how. I have like four pages of notes on this movie. That's cool, man. I, I legitimately think I probably could have turned my notes into like an essay of some sort. But. Oh, it's it would be easy to do just because of, like we were mentioning earlier, it's just jam-packed full of shit. And on, you know, knowing what I know, and this is, you know, this is not really a spoiler, but this is pretty much like Von Trier's, like all of his bodies of work being coalesced into a self and examination. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you've you gotta imagine he's really putting a lot of ideas and thoughts into this film. And he does it a lot with art, you know, so you kinda have to be a little bit keen with art and metaphors and, you know, allegories and things like that. So like I said, that's why it's you know, it, it could be an essay is what I'm getting at. So we get set up immediately with the fact that he's with Virgil. Yeah. I mean, whether we know it from the start or not, yeah, there's just a, a black screen and Dylan and, and Bruno Gans talking, like you said, Jack and Virgil. And what I find interesting about that is it's a line refrained later on in the film, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, we already get that opening. And my very first note, and it's, it's already, you know, what we discussed earlier, is that uh, the movie is told into five randomly chosen incidents over a 12-year period. Quote, and, unquote, randomly. Right, exactly. And I put with dialogue from Jack and Verge. And then it does start with the first incident. Okay. So first incident is Matt Dillon picks up Uma Thurman because... She's got a flat. Her She's got a flat. Her Jack is fucked up. She's a fucking pushy bitch. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that Uma Thurman could be this grating. It was good, man. I it's... kind of understood him killing her by the end of this. Like, not really. Like, no, but you but know what I mean. Yeah. Like... God damn. So, <laughs> what is it? So, she fucking convinces him to take her to the blacksmith to get the jack fixed and then take her back 
and then we don't see it, but convinces him to start trying to jack up the car. Jack breaks again, <laughs> convinces him to go back again, but that's when he kills her. Right. Yeah. That breaks down what happens in the scene in a general sense. Knowing what we know, this is the spoiler section of the movie, and especially how Virgil later on starts calling him out on the way that he's telling his stories to begin with. Mm -hmm. Do you think she actually called him a wimp? No. Like I said, knowing what we know, and because we watched this film multiple times now, is knowing that this is more or less... Not necessarily the unreliable narrator, because I don't think he's unreliable, but he's telling it in a way where, not necessarily that he's the victim, per se, but it's it's more or less fictionalized. Like, this might be some of his inner thoughts seeping out, and he's putting it, atta or attaching it to these people to validate, mm -hmm. you know, what he does. Right, because he's ultimately kind of trying to win an argument with Virgil. Or, they're not really in an argument, but he's trying to convince him, like, no, like, see, this is what I'm doing. And Virgil's like, no, what, what you're doing is evil. Exactly. It's basically them conversing about, you know, morality, ethics, all these other ideas and concepts, you know. And honestly, I think in the wider discussion of this movie, that some of those discussions is what can kind of grate on people because Virgil isn't necessarily a direct counterpoint. He's not the opposite of Jack. No, he's not. You're right. He's the most virtuous of the damned, but he's still one of the damned. Yeah, exactly. So there's times, even in their discussions, where Virgil tries to give him outs that still aren't, like, great or ethical, really. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're But saying, the point yeah. is that Jack, even when he's given these outs, he's like, no, 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 this is why I was doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it I do like those philosophical questions, you mm -hmm. know, that they pose in this. And then you hear both sides of the argument. Not, to, like, not, not necessarily equally. But it's not both equally, sides, which is weird. Right. Not like, equally, but like you were saying, Verge has a little bit more morality and he's trying to use a little bit more reason, I suppose, where Jack mm -hmm. is like, no, this is just the way it is. And it's not like they're arguing. They're just trying to defend their stance, you know. It's like tick for tat, I suppose. But that's what I do like because I, I do find it's like, man, why – would Uma Thurman's character be that straightforward and just like, you're asking for it, regardless if this person is or not a serial killer. You look like a serial killer. Yeah, and he's like, you know what, I take that back. You look like a wimp. <laughs> you don't have the disposition to be a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah, no, okay. But the whole time, too, is she's, through the dialogue, is like laying the foundation of why or how he became a serial killer. Like, oh, you could hide my car over there. Oh, you look like this. I shouldn't have gone in here. And, your van looks like uh, something that could use to be, you know, dropping off or storing, hauling corpses. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. She's spelling everything out to him. And, and then when he finally does, it's like, okay, this is maybe, you know, the way he's telling it, this is my first murder, mm -hmm. right? And so this is, you know, how I am embarking on this journey. So I've got my first work out of the way, right? Now I kind of know what I am as an artist, right? This is his art. Mm-hmm. And then it jumps into that second one where we learn he has certain compulsions, <laughs> you know, things like that. So that's the way I'm, I'm kind of looking at it going forward into this next incident. Like he's got his first piece of art out of the way, which is very impulsive, very on the spot. And now he's going into one a little bit more calculated. The discussion in between when he starts to talk about architecture and then 
past that is when he actually describes when he like parks the car and then goes back a little bit into his discussion about art. I thought that that was the section that really started to really lay out what the two themes in this movie that really jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. There is very much a third theme in which this movie is Lars self-critiquing himself. It is. Which is a little bit super obvious in some <laughs> moments of the movie, which are kind of funny because they're obviously like very meta lines when they're said. And then, of course, there's a montage that is insanely meta. No doubt. But beyond that, that's there. But I kind of felt like that was almost like a sub-theme compared to the other two things that jumped out. No, I, I totally agree with that. Because they do have those discussions about early on about the architecture with cathedrals and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, and talking about how it evolves from using raised arches and what have you and whatnot. What I do like about it is that there comes a point where Verge is like, all of this doesn't make sense or it wouldn't make sense unless you're an engineer. He's like, oh, yeah, I am an engineer. So it's like, oh, there we go. There's one other term that I like that he did use, and it made me look it up. <laughs> a good German expression. He said it's Ordnungschwang, which translates to like this orderliness of compulsion, which is OCD, essentially. Yeah. But that's what I'm getting. And that leads into something else going into... The next incident and on down the road. So when he brings up his luckiness with the hiding of the car, I think it sets up something that is expounded throughout the rest of yeah, the movie. Absolutely. Which is not even necessarily the indifference of people, but the indifference of kind of life in general to what's going on. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what you do because look how fucking big the world is. It's going to continue to do shit no matter what you do. I totally agree with that sentiment because for me, looking at that, it was, and this is something I talked to Jeff with about last night, is you can read into it, not necessarily like a, like a God per se, but in some kind of divine intervention where it's, he can get away with all this shit because of that fact that nature and, and just life in general is... Because there's no counterpoint. Yeah. Like I said, Virgil's not his counterpoint. He's not. <laughs> there's nothing that's going to push back. Or if there is something that's going to push back, it's because it's another sentient person or being like himself. Yeah. Or because he's infringing upon something else. But even if he does that, there's still so much else that's <laughs> completely indifferent to anything he does. No doubt the about that. The rest of the universe is still completely indifferent. Yeah, exactly. It's going to carry on regardless. It's not going to stop just because of what Jack is doing. <laughs> The other thing, I thought I might have been reaching when I was catching these themes throughout the movie mm-hmm. until literally like a half hour before we started when I was doing a little bit of extra reading on some of the things that Von Trier has said. And I think this sets up the fact that this is kind of a political movie. Uh, yeah, you can argue that for sure. I think the architecture symbolism in the beginning, especially when he's talking about how the aspiring gothic arches not only could go higher and have these forces come down off of them, Mm -hmm. but it allowed them to use less resources to hold it up, is the setting up of trickle-down economics. That's a good point, man. That's a very good point. And all the policies surrounding those, because Von Trier... The man he thought was his biological father for most of his life was like a communist and his mom was a social democrat or something like that. Yeah, I didn't didn't look too much into that. And then he has said some political things about 
this movie since it came out and like when it was coming up to its release, like talking about, uh, yeah, so this is about this movie's a glory and how like life is kind of evil and doesn't give a shit. And that's only been proved by Trump, basically. <laughs> Watching some of that behind you mm-hmm. know, the scenes footage and whatnot, he definitely made that statement. So I think the other main theme of this movie is a condemnation of the rise of populism. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, this is set in the U.S., and so and we're here in the U.S., and it's uh, an extremely politicized time right now, which we usually don't get into too much on this podcast. But populism is really kind of rearing its head around the world. Yeah, um, demagoguery. Yeah. And so it's definitely themes that he can still comment on from a firsthand perspective, even not being from here and not really doing much in the United States whenever, anytime. <laughs> you know right, I mean? but I mean, you can see it for what it's worth. You know, you don't have to lean one way or the other. It's pretty yeah. straightforward. All right, uh, but one of, one of the points too I was going to make when he discusses some of the architecture too, he talks about you know art. He's like, you know, the artist will hide away certain pieces that only God can see. You know, in mm-hmm. the corners, and that kind of makes sense a little bit too when you think about, like I said, his killings because he equates them to being his art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's tucked away in the Pacific Northwest where no one else around gives a shit, let alone nature. But if you believe in a, you know, a God, that's the only person who actually gets to, to see that art. It's only for that, you know, particular character. So I think that's kind of neat. And then also just with my first watch through, I have to say that this first sequence confused the fuck out of me because it's only like eight minutes long. And I'm like, I know there's only five sequences. How is this movie so long? <laughs> know, right? <laughs> After he kills her and dumps the body and shit, we do get introduced to his walk-in freezer off of Prospect Avenue. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why he chose it is because the sign's broken, so no one even knows that fucking avenue exists for Prost. the most part. Yeah, <laughs> bros. <laughs> so that's also interesting, too, because I think that's another metaphor for something else in this film. All right, so after all of that, right, we get into Incident 2, where he's in his van, and watching that lady walk. Egger's wife. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Mrs. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> fucking funny. Has just had her brain wiped, and now she thinks that Egger died about six months that's ago. That's so funny, man. Yeah, knowing that, too, it's like, that's kind of funny thinking about that shit. Here's something. First time, second time, it took me the, the last time watching this to really mm-hmm. catch it is that while he's in the van and he's stalking her, you know, all that stuff, and she goes inside her home, when he gets out of his van, if you notice in the background, there seems to be like a church because it's a cross. Okay. I'm like, that's kind of interesting for a couple of different reasons, and particularly in this incident, right? So keep that in mind. There's a church right next door or some kind of, it could be a community center or whatever. But uh, he goes up to the door, you know, knocks. He's pretending to be a cop, right? She's not letting him in. And he's just kind of looking around and trying to interject that into his conversation. So he's making up shit as it goes along just to see what works. And, you know, he's noticing her husband work with the railroads, whatever. It it finally comes down that he convinces her that he's an insurer who can get her double or whatever her, was it like severance or? Right. Yeah, whatever her benefit she's getting. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, come on in. (laughs) But when he's in... He kind of makes her feel guilty because he's like, ah, it's so embarrassing having to be out there exposed. You know, he's like, I don't like doing this. I don't know why I have to do this shit. 
But what it makes her do, it drops her guard. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. She's like, I'll get you some tea. And he chokes her from behind. and mm-hmm. they, So a little bit of it's comical. <laughs> it's weirdly comical. Well, and part of that also seemed, you already know he's a killer. Right. So a little bit of that can be like him just being pissed off at like, you make me fucking wait <laughs> out there all this time. Yeah, the exposed. fucking guy drove by, waved, honked the horn and shit. That's just going to get me caught. <laughs> yeah, he's annoyed. Yeah. So to follow up on this flick is about the indifference of people and life to what you do. I had to write down that what I noticed, especially the second time through, is that although she is at first doing technically the smart and right thing, like obviously don't just yeah, let don't him in him. because he says he's a police officer. Show me your badge. She has no interest in the fact that he's supposedly trying to help other people in that moment. Right, exactly. Because he frames it as like, we're trying to make sure things don't happen down at Carlson's where you shop and like where other people are and all that shit. She has no interest in that. Now, like I said, she is technically doing the right smart thing. Right, but but it's not because of all of that as soon as it's it's her her. personal interest. You're absolutely right. So... That does show, like, the self-indulgence, the the ego, mm-hmm. you know? It doesn't matter unless it's about me. Him being such a fucking goddamn Karen with a police officer is hilarious. That shit, man. I tell you what, the first time Jeff and I watched this, I'll never forget this, too, because I was like, this is... It's supposed to be dark, but it's it's funny, man, because he's obsessing. Well, and that goes into the drag, <laughs> which is also darkly comedic. Yeah. Because it just leaves a literal fucking bloody streak across it's crazy. miles. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's so obvious, but it's so funny, man. It's absurd. It's exactly what it is. All right. I, like, so we're kind of laying out the general of what, what the scene tells. A little bit more of the comedy, too, I think, is during that choking out and stuff. Because he doesn't choke her out completely the first right, time through. Right, because he sucks at it at first. Right. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, I got something I know you're going to like. And he breaks up a little donut. And he's got chamomile tea. He's like, this will help. But what it does is it causes her to choke. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, no, you can't, you can't, you can't do it that way. <laughs> right? Gives her a pillow and props her up. And she starts to kind of come out of it. <laughs> and he's like, hell no. Nah. He chokes. He, he does choke her out, strangles her. Yeah, and then he finds wherever her heart's at, stabs her, little blood squirts. It's like, that looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, after that, it gets down to him doing like the whole cleanup process. And that's where his obsessive compulsiveness. And he starts talking about his OCD more, which kind of gets left by like the midway point in this movie because Von Trier talks about mental illness and mental states a lot. And this weirdly ends up just his killing sort of cures his OCD in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. Right. But then he describes his killing in a form of cycles, mm-hmm. um, which Virgil then points out can be ascribed to any number of things. Yep. He points out like alcoholism specifically. What the stabs and whatnot. Um, yeah. But also knowing that Von Trier did an entire depression trilogy and depression is cyclic. Yep. Exactly. That makes sense. It, and he's been very outspoken about the fact that he has fucking depression and right. he doesn't do shit sometimes because of it. Like, Yeah, not to not to speak badly of the gentleman, but in the interviews I was watching, you know, you could see like he's got nervous tics and, mm-hmm. you know, you could tell there's 
there's oh, yeah, a lot more he's going got on. Phobias and shit too, doesn't he? Yeah, like, you can tell. So there's there's a lot of stuff going on inside his mind. So it makes sense that he's incorporating that into these characters. I don't know if it's good or not good that he had the OCD basically just disappear by the end of the movie <laughs> because of the killing, but right. It's brought up and talked about a lot at first, but by the end, they're not even mentioning anything. Like. No, no, no. I th- you're right. Throughout the film, he does mention there's a point where his OCD is, is lessened because of his killings, mm-hmm. which you can use that as like maybe a metaphor. My OCD is, you know, it's is not as severe because I'm actually doing works, you know, creating art and being active. So I'm not always in my head. But along the way, right, in that scene, the second time I noticed that cross is when he's getting out of the van when he's sitting there, it looks like he's going to take off. And then, you know, he has a thought that he left the blood underneath the carpet or underneath the stool or behind the picture frame. And mm-hmm. <laughs> he keeps going in and keeps washing it. And then that's when the cop arrives. There was a suspected burglary in the neighborhood. Tells him to get out. He's like, can I search the back of your van? He's like, well, I'd be a bad guy if I said no. <laughs> right? But you're right. He's kind of enticing the cop the whole time to like... You need to inspect here. You need to search this impeccably with a magnifying glass. Demand with my rights as a citizen. <laughs> I love that. He said, like, if you catch my drift. <laughs> kind of like does that. And the cop is one of those things too, like you were saying earlier with a little bit of the theme, like people uncaring or just don't really give a fuck. It's like this cop should be really listening to what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, regardless if he's the killer or not. If somebody's telling you that, Maybe you should follow through just mm-hmm. in case, you know. But he's like, shit, I'm scot-free. I'm getting the, the body. <laughs> and he, he just, yeah, drags her all the way back. But this is where I'm thinking with the divine intervention thing is this, you know, Christian symbology. Because what happens is he has that trail, blood trail, leading all the way back. And then the great rain comes and washes it all the way. And so that's what he's saying. He's like, he. I looked at it like he didn't need like human validation, right? To, all right, he did a killing. He, you know, he wants to make sure that the cop is validating his works. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want you to look over everything just to make sure that I didn't miss anything, right? I want you to catch me fucking up, you know? But he doesn't get that. He gets it from a higher power. So now it's like, oh, I can do this with, you know, like wanton abandon. Like, I don't have to worry about man, <laughs> This was one of the parts where I was worried that maybe I was stretching a little bit until I did the reading and it is a slightly political movie. Mm -hmm. I felt like this part, if you're looking at it through that lens, is the right embracing being the faithful (laughs) contingent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially like here in the United States, the Christian right, for sure. Mm -hmm. But propping up all these leaders who are wrap themselves in saying that this is what they believe in shit, but aren't doing anything (laughs) of that sort. Because he he even says, like, he's like, I'm not a religious man, but when this happened, it's like, why not say it was God? Right. I mean... Why not think there was a higher power looking out for me because they looked down at me when I was doing this. I know this isn't things like are just, working out well for me, so why not attribute it to? Uh, yeah, why? Uh, why else? Like I was wanting, almost wanting to get caught. 
it was like I don't know. It just felt like some sort of like version of the prosperity gospel type bullshit. Yeah, I know what you're saying exactly with that. Here's something else I do like about this whole incident. Right after he's explaining all that shit, is uh, he starts to put the pictures on the wall next to his mirror so he can practice oh, emotions and I expressions. Love that. <laughs> That is some of the funniest shit. It's not supposed to be, but it really is, especially when he's looking at the stretched face and he's like, ah, mm-hmm. I really like that. I was like, this is, it's not supposed to be funny. I mean, it is, but it's a serial killer, man. Right. <laughs> you know, that was neat though. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever seen, I'm not saying a movie hasn't done that before with a character that's supposed to be a psychopath and not actually feeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's but, apathetic. Like, it might not be the first one, but this is the first time I've seen that. I thought it was a really fucking neat scene. Smile. Yeah. Very disappointed. Disappointed. <laughs> disappointed. It's so good, man. And then we get a little bit of a flashback sequence because he's explained to Verge, you know, growing up. He wasn't particularly fond of, like, hide-and-seeking games and stuff like that. But he took refuge in the reeds, right? Mm-hmm. So he could hide from people. But Verge is counter-argument. It's like, well, one can argue that you were leading a trail straight to you, so you liked the thrill of the come-and-catch-me aspect of it, mm-hmm. you know? Because even that little kid has a little bit of a smile, like a naughty smile, you know? But that makes sense, too, because of what we've seen prior with the blood trail. You know, like it, almost like he wants to get caught, Yeah, you know? So they have that conversation, but another thing that kind of, you know, plays out later on is the the scythes in the meadow. Yeah, the breath of the meadow. Ah, so good. I like that a lot, too. That sets up two different things, because it sets up the end when we're shown him in hell, which I thought was a really neat thing to look back on. But it's also one of the instances, after you've gone through this movie a couple times, where he's interpreting it wrong. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or he's seeing what he wants to see in that, and he's seeing... More the scything down and the work being done, and he's not seeing the fact that the breath is from them working to help each other. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. That It's more profound than what he's seeing from the lens as a kid, right? To him, it's just something that's almost mystic in a sense. You know, it's it has this rhythm. It has this certain, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, certain quality that's to him maybe entrancing, you know? The breathing and, you know, the swaying and all that stuff. <laughs> but what it, it leads to, too, actually, when you look at serial killers and people talk about this, is the animal cruelty with children is usually where it starts. You know, and they, they do the duck sniffing. Yeah, the little duck. Like, yeah, yeah. But that, I, that was sad. It was, but no ducks were harmed. Right. It was all, like, animatronics and just props and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But that whole point was just to show you, like, he had those beginning stages. Yeah. You know? It was already there. All right. This is a scene I forgot the first time I watched it, and then the more recent time I watched it the second time, is uh, where he's choking the student, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where I feel like this after This isn't the, technically one of the incidents, but you get a little bit of a play out. Mm-hmm. You start to learn a little bit more about some of his thoughts and stuff with photography and using Mr. the corpse. Yeah, using the corpses as actually pieces of art. And he's being a little bit more reckless, right? He's, like, carrying the fucking corpse up and down an apartment complex and transporting the body. And then he winds up driving past this wood, like an older lady. I don't know if she's hitchhiking or just walking on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. And he's like, God damn it, damn it. He has to turn around and run her down. (laughs) And he does. 
But then he's like, well, then this gave me a spark of creativity because he got kind of bored with mm-hmm. the student. He, he didn't really have much inspiration, but this gave him new inspiration. And he felt it was comical with the way that he was posing them. And Virgil's like, well, you know, you've got blood on your van. And he's like, I didn't really care. <laughs> if you're paying attention to what's going on as they have that pulled out shot of the building uh-huh. as he's bringing the corpses up and down. Yeah, and you shit, can see people. In the there's frames. people. And it's indifference of life. Right. And that's like you were saying that one of the themes throughout. It's like, you know, people are indifferent. Makes sense. But this is where he gets into the photography and he's talking about like the tiger and the lamb analogy, you know, and uh, you were talking about Mr. Sophistication. This is like part of the serial killing where you want your work to be known, but there's also like the chase once again. It's like, you know, come and get me if you can find me. When he starts talking about Blake and the tiger and the lamb, Virgil points out kind of what I was getting at with the breath of the meadow. After he explains what he thinks of the tiger and the lamb, Virgil tells him, you read Blake like the devil reads the Bible. <laughs> right, right. You know, you're you know missing the forest for the trees. Yep. You're picking out these certain parts because you really like these aspects. And you're not seeing the bigger picture, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think that's interesting because... He, and it's he not just, that even that you're not reading right. them. You're reading them and just skipping over to the parts you like. Yeah, this is what I liked about it. <laughs> I don't like this... Mm-hmm. But he even mentions to Virgil that is he's like the lamb doesn't want to be or didn't choose to be the you know the victim or the art for the tiger, so that makes sense too. You know, it's like the sheeple aren't necessarily choosing to be victims. And well, and the other thing is Jack keeps trying to, and I don't think this is the only argument where he tries to make it sound this way. He tries to make it sound like him making art is the same as a tiger simply needing to eat. Yeah, yeah. Which I would argue isn't necessarily the case. (laughs) Yeah. I think him needing to eat is the same as a tiger needing to eat. Yeah. Do it how you need to, depending on your circumstance, (laughs) and with what you're comfortable with. Don't be surprised if something happens to you if you violate those norms, like through cannibalism or something. Oh my gosh, yeah, no kidding. But... As vital as I think art is, because we talk about art every fucking week on this podcast, and it's what I occupy all my fucking free time with. (laughs) Yeah. Like, him making art is not the same as... No. You don't get to prey upon people to make art. No, 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 exactly. It's (laughs) He's misinterpreting that whole dynamic, I suppose. As well-elocuted as some of his arguments in this movie are... I think this is definitely one of those movies that you have to take into account who the arguments are coming from <laughs> in the course of the movie. Precisely. Another, I think, interesting aspect of this before it gets into the uh, the next incident is he's explaining what he calls the dark light. He's like, he doesn't like, oh, not that he doesn't like them, but he's more interested in the negatives because he's finding the dark light, you know, mm-hmm. and he's equating it to a demonic quality of light. And then he gives the analogy of the lamppost, you know, him walking in the shadows growing that was in front really and behind. Animation, I, thought. I thought that was clever, too. It's like, if you are a serial killer, this is your way of explaining how you're feeling through that process. You know, your ego, you've been, you're satisfied, you've been sated. And then along that journey, the shadow behind starts to grow, which he equates to pain, mm-hmm. you know, because he has his aching to hunt again to where it's unbearable. And then when he reaches the next lamppost in that analogy, 
he's like, everything has been kind of condensed until I have to kill again. The pain becomes too immense. I was like, that's, I like that analogy. I don't agree with it. <laughs> it makes sense. But that's what you were saying too, what Virgil's like, you can attribute that to any kind of, you know, program, Sick alcoholism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, yeah, you could. That, that's a solid argument, yeah. you know? He's he, trying. He's trying to be like, I'm special because of this. And right. Virgil's like, no, you're not. People deal oh, with these kind of cycles. <laughs> Just get fucking help. Like, right. Which... Ties into the ego bit. It does, and you know, he we even just says had that a little Mr. bit too. Sophistication yeah. bring up and exactly where he's dropping his a little bit of his insecurities because of the OCD and all these little habits. And now, like I said, a little bit more reckless. The ego's kind of taken over. He's somewhat accomplished, right? He's already have a little bit of divine intervention to kind of justify what he's doing. And long story short, what I do like too is knowing this this whole thing about the negative. It's like, all right, I'll get back to it at like the very last shot in the film. <laughs> it's like, man, that's kind of interesting because of what he says in this exchange. That ends the second incident. We get into the third incident, which is the family. All right, I'm going to... We've watched some fucked up things. The fucking picnic might be one of the oh most God. like heartbreaking oh. and fucked up things we have seen on this show. Yeah, I would say that as far as... I was really stoned imagery. when I watched that dude, and it was hard to watch, dude. Like, it was really fucking hard to watch this scene. It is fucked up. It's really fucked and up. And I think it's especially because, like, and I think you'd agree with this, like, I have a pretty good relationship with my family. Yeah, like, <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> for that like the realism of it right it's like it's horrific it's one of the worst things that you could imagine you know so in that I sense I might have done a little bit better if I wasn't quite so stoned but, right you know, but I mean in that a sense a little dab will do you <laughs> <laughs> you're right so um, in the sense that it's done in this manner right in this film we know it's like it's just it's a fucking movie man you yeah, know yeah yeah but that's not something I'd ever 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 want to see in real life you know, that's where I can make a distinction between, you know, reality and fiction, you know. So in that regard, right, I know this is just probably casts and, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, all yeah. that shit. Regardless, it's still fucked up. Yeah, it's still fucked up. Because <laughs> the whole thinking point. In that, if your emotions are sitting oh, there man. in it, then it's. Yeah, yeah. This, this one will definitely be the one that I would say the majority of people would ditch yep. the rest of this film. Right. Yeah, no, I'm good. If they made it through the duckling. They might not make it through this. Right. I think what Virgil's kind of speaking to is a little bit earlier in their exchange is they're Maybe talking we about say what family. what happens. Right. <laughs> yeah. But no, there, there is a discussion about family. He's like, did you ever want to have a family or whatever? He's like, you know, I had relationships, some romances. I mean, he gets into that a little bit later on, but this is what his idea of a family is. Mm -hmm. You know, I was reading a couple of different reviews and analysis, and I agree with some. I tend to disagree with a lot of them. But... One person was arguing, is like, oh, he had a family. This is his kids. Like, no, fuck no, that's not his family. This is what his idea of a family is. Right. Yeah, no, he didn't have kids. These no, are his kids. No way. I think if he were to have children, he would probably raise them in the way that he's doing, you know, especially if they are leaning toward that tendency. He would probably cultivate them. <laughs> yeah, no, no. He was probably dating the mom. Right, right, right. Which is Under why the guys on this picnic. Right, right. With the Under kids. the guys, yes. Because we know he's been practicing the emotions, going through the motions. Yeah, he can fake it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, this ain't his kids. What I think is a little bit funny is when they first do arrive to that range that they're at. 
There's one of the kids you can tell is kind of in it. The other one, grumpy, is not, which is funny. Grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to be here. <laughs> but the whole point, and this is what you were mentioning earlier, is Matt Dillon is explaining hunting to the children. What he's saying is that he detests hunting, right? It's something that he, he it doesn't give him any pride in. But I'm like, that's kind of funny because that's not true. <laughs> I was going to say, this is where, like, the movie really starts to bring a sharper contrast into what he's saying versus what he's doing, which I would say that Virgil calls him out a little bit on it, too. He does. I don't, re- I don't remember a lot of Virgil's dialogue, but a lot of it is basically just Virgil calling him out on his inconsistencies and oh, shit. Man. Yeah. But he speaks extremely eloquently against things like calling and right. He's trophy talking, yeah, hunting. Exactly. And all of it. Just the parade and all that stuff. All of this. The revelry. Yeah. All while trying to show this is how you properly hunt. And even to Virgil, because he's trying to win his point, and this is when you realize, oh, all he's been doing this entire time is trying to manipulate, is he's making himself out to be a gentleman hunter. Right. There's a proper way to do things. You take the prey in this order. And they it's were trauma. making it hard on me. <laughs> he says, that's what he's annoyed with, is yeah. they were making it hard and on me. And that's what he says. They weren't he's moving like, properly. My, he says, my family were moving the wrong way. But no matter what he's saying, look at what he's actually doing. Right. He's teaching you how to hold and use your guns all while in red hats. God. I, I mean, all of that's a, a target. <laughs> Red's a huge theme throughout this film. I was leaning back into the political side of this. Right wing. Mm-hmm. He's under the guise of showing you this and that, but... The reality the, of... It's all just the person in power preying yeah. upon the weaker. Makes total sense, man. And you're right. Because I think we both... And their followers. Yes, yeah, so we both know because, you know, I'm from a family that owns a lot of guns, too. I don't yeah. necessarily own them. Dude, his speech on ethical hunting bugged me. Yeah. Because you know what ethical hunting is... Making sure you can put them down in one shot. Yeah. And he explains that to the kid. It's like, you want to aim for this. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you hit them in the hinds, you hit the animal. No. You shouldn't be wiping out an entire family of deer in the first place. Not in this day and age. That's no, not dude. ethical hunting. Not in his day and age, because this is set back in like the 80s. Yeah. I think 70s, 80s, yeah. yeah. Regardless. It, it, it spans across like 12 years. Right. But. but you're right. It hits those points. And when you think about those time periods, there was an uprising of more of a right-wing politics, and especially in this, this country, too. This is when too. you start getting a lot of these things first set into motion. Makes sense, and man. And the, the bedrock being set and from Oof. what we're seeing now. You could, Yeah, you could say this could be, you know, a commentary like the NRA and, like, if it's trickle-down economics and evangelicism Well, I think it... Populism. It, like I said, I think it's... Why else would he set it in I that time period? I think it's basically a condemnation of, like, Reagan on. Yeah, I could see that, too. And, and I think, too, maybe setting it in the Pacific Northwest with Ted Bundy in that mm-hmm. time period, he's kind of carrying on a little bit of that persona, you know, with all of that, right? He's pretending to be ethical, but he's <laughs> he's not. And that's where it gets fucked up, because after they do shoot at the target, then he mentions, you know, my family are moving the wrong way, and that's when he starts to pick off the family. And you're like, oh, my God, damn. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's pretty brutal. Yeah, it's a weird cut. It's one that I'm kind of thankful for because I don't know how you would... I'm not sure I would like seeing... No, I don't know how to even word this. A little person? <laughs> no, I don't... Everything in between Yeah. him basically getting them set up to where he's hunting them, I feel would have felt really awkward. But oh, they leading just up cut, into it? Yeah, yeah, but they just cut from 
we're target hunting to straight into him hunting them. Now we're hunting them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really kind of appreciated that because that's all what matters anyway. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like all that in between would have been drawn out and awkward and like yeah. realistic. We kind of realize that he's not an entirely accurate narrator. So I don't know realistically how he gets them out in that position without right, right. having capped them. And anyway. that's probably what, you know, his, his telling of that story is too, is like, I'm just getting to the points. Yeah. You know, I don't have to tell you all the shit in between. That doesn't really matter. Right. But I'm like, oh, it's brutal. He gets both the kids. Then he has the picnic scene and you're like, oh, that poor lady. That is so, so horrific. <laughs> so if you don't like violence towards kids. Don't watch God. the unrated because this is the big difference. Yeah, this is big nasty. This is where you're going to... There's a couple other differences throughout the film. Mm-hmm. But the biggest difference is during the picnic and during the hunting the kids. Because in the rated cut, you don't see them get hit by the bullets. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> you also don't get most of the pullout shots at the picnic. Okay. Have you seen the rated? You've only seen the unrated. Right? Yeah, that's what I was saying. I, reading it, I was like, I don't necessarily. It's like, yeah, I mean, if you don't want to see that, then yeah, definitely watch the rated version. So the difference at the picnic is the shot where right towards the end, before he starts counting down and shit, where it's pulled out and you see them all just sitting there right. for like two seconds. That's not there. It cuts from her with the sauce mm-hmm. to him being like. Oh, so this has been a good day. Like, Gotcha. So they just cut that little, yeah, that little section out. And you don't see the, the headshot as much. Okay. I got gotcha. I think you get one, like, really quick glimpse at it, but it's it doesn't linger. not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that shit's yeah, like... I don't. When she brings the applesauce up to his mouth, I don't think it lingers there as, like, because she sits there, quick. or not the applesauce, the apple pie. Yeah. Like, I think it shows her bring it up to his mouth, and that's where it cuts. It doesn't show her, like, trying to push it in a little bit, and then, like... Moving it to the oh. other kid and shit. Yeah, because he's like, it doesn't say like Georgie's not mm-hmm. eating his pie or whatever. Yeah. That's another thing too, Polly. American is apple pie. There you go. Yeah, kids yeah. aren't eating it. <laughs> it's state of politics right now. Yeah. Kids that's... aren't buying the old bullshit for the most part. Yeah, that's kind of the commentary he's making a little bit. And I think too interesting with the family aspect of it too, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he does. He asks her favorite number. She says, what, 12? He starts mm-hmm. the countdown as he's going back up the tower. And she's finally putting it together. But after a while, or at a certain point, she's like, what the fuck? I'm going to probably die anyway. She gets shot. Knowing him, he never thought of her as anything other than necessarily a target. Mm-hmm. But she does that symbolic passing behind the target to turn back into a target for him. Yeah. After he was just having a, a picnic with her. And I thought that was really neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he gets her, and it's brutal, too, shooting her in the back. What he was speaking about earlier with the whole trophy parade and all that stuff, not only has he culled all the fucking crows, he's got the family lined up like that, too. And that's what they also talked about, too. There's a lot of, like, German imagery, too, in this film with what have you, but this one more or less is, like said, the hunty aspect of that. Yeah. The trophy hunting. And you're like, damn, that is fucked up. And uh, after all that shit's been said and done... I put Mr. Sophistication Strikes again. He started to put the newspaper clippings up. I will say the trophy shot reminded me of something like a super, super dark Wes Anderson would do. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's, it's very Wes Anderson-y. The way the shot, yeah, is framed and everything, I 100% agree with you there. There's no doubt about that. Here's, man, like I say, here's the 
fucked up things. He's collecting what I've you know put trophies, newspaper clippings mm. because mm-hmm. then you know whatever. But then he's making a discovery about rigor mortis and where he can manipulate the corpses, and so he turns Grumpy's face into a smile. And I put by uh, manipulating his corpse with wires and material. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. You know? And I was like, oh, that's fucked up. And then it goes into the fourth incident. Okay, so before that happens, there's a couple things I want to bring up. Oh, absolutely. You get one of the more meta bits where Virgil calls him out. He's like, you're constantly trying to manipulate me and now with children. Oh, yeah. And the way Virgil frames it, it's obviously... Von Trier commenting on his own filmography with shit like Antichrist. Oh, man. And the fact that he has just, like, he's done taboo things almost for taboo's sake just to get a rise out of people. Exactly. Because, like we said, this is a weirdly self-deprecating movie. Yeah, and I think that's what... And it's hard uh, to explain that, but it's also one of the things that is most evident when you watch through it. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to know... Or have seen a lot of his works. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Then, during some of their little discussion and some of the weird montages that happen in between, especially before he actually shows how he's manipulating Grumpy, mm-hmm. you have fame playing. Yeah. That's why, like, throughout the week, I heard it a couple times throughout the week. <laughs> you know, just like I do, fame's not a happy movie. <laughs> no. There's a cost of fame. And if you're really listening to the lyrics, that's there. And this is like kind of starting to sink in, like the cost for his art and shit. Yeah, that's what he's leading into. Yeah. <clears throat> but here's the big one. Here, I'm I'm going to end up going off on, no, for like, like two or three minutes here. Here's an interesting part that kind of plays into the political reading. It's a weird line, and so I don't think it's unintentional that he references this. In the in between, we have in a blackout discussion. Matt Dillon saying, like, it's starting to taste sulfuric or something. And Verge, do you want me to show you the way to the next whiskey bar? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is going to be a really roundabout way, but I got to talk about this because it's a reference that super jumped out at me. Love the song Mac the Knife. Mac the Knife has been a standard for forever because it originates in a song, Die Moritat von Maki Messer, the Ballad of Mac the Knife, from the Three Penny Opera, lyrics by Bertolt Brecht. Brecht also did a libretto that was then turned into a political satirical opera by Kurt Weil named The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany. Wow. The libretto and then The Rise and Fall of Mahogany both contained the song Alabama Song, which was okay. later covered by like The Doors. Right show you the way to the next whiskey bar gotcha. I'm gonna die I'll... in the opera that song is sung by a group of whores that are talking about going to this newly founded town of mahogany in hopes of riches and like they're basically saying that they're gonna go out I'm going to the next whiskey bar because I'm gonna go pick up a john yeah, make some money. and fucking make some money yeah which is even funnier when you think about the fact Jim Morrison <laughs> is singing it, right? I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> the overall plot of The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany. This is why I think this was 100% intentional and definitely plays into the political aspect of the movie. Because there's a, one thing that lines up in a big, weird way. I think I'm going to get a couple of the details wrong, but 
the basic is this group of, oh God, I think they're on the run. Yeah, three fugitives break down and they're on the run. They find themselves in the far north of Canada, I believe, pretty close to Alaska. And they're like, well, we're safe here for a little bit, even though we're broke down because the feds aren't going to search this far north anyway. Yeah. And while they're there, they're like, well, we're so close to the Alaskan gold fields that what we should do is found a pleasure city where everything goes and we can just bring them down and fucking come on in, spend your money. We'll be fucking rich. Have a good time. It's not like Vegas. (laughs) And so it's this shining place where you can go and your dreams can come true and you can live the life you want to live. Like (coughs) America. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's right after they found it is when Alabama song comes in and the whores have just heard of it and they're going to go down there and find out a a bunch of shit and all this. And one of the guys keeps kind of wanting to not do this. And even by the time the whores show up, like there's already people starting to leave because like this isn't quite the place we thought it was going to be. But the people are all still sitting there and kind of trying to make it work. But I mean, just in general, things haven't been going quite well. Right. And they start all kind of bickering a little bit between themselves. And then the main guy that sort of, Jimmy, that sort of figured to help build the city in the first place, and he's kind of the main character of this all. I think, what is it? Is he drunk? Oh, no. So the feds are starting to get closer. I was completely wrong about where they're at. I think they're in Florida. Okay. (laughs) Even though for some reason it's still Alaskan gold farmers and shit, but I think Like, they're literally somewhere close to, like, Pensacola. Okay. (laughs) Which, this has just gotten really even weirder. (laughs) But (laughs) there's a hurricane warning. And they think they're going to get wiped out by the hurricane. And while they're sitting there in this town, not really able to leave because they're kind of surrounded by the feds and think they're all about to die because a hurricane's coming down on them, And they've all kind of felt like everything is fucked anyway and have been arguing amongst themselves because all this shit hasn't been working out. Jimmy's like, what point is there to life then? All we did was try to achieve our dream, and that didn't work. The only thing to do is to do whatever you want. If I have the power to take someone's money from him, that should be my right to do it. If I have the power to take someone's wife from him, that should be my power to do that. If I can do it, I should be able to. And everyone's like, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. And then the hurricane wipes out their enemies and leaves them untouched. (laughs) Wow. Like the rain. That's awesome. Eventually, so that's what they end up turning mahogany into. And they all go nuts on their own vices, mostly getting drunk, but like the whores are whoring double time and and all sorts of shit. And Jimmy ends up broke. (laughs) And some other shit happens. Not only does he end up broke, he's owing people money, and I think he starts some sort of altercation. Ends up in jail. uh, Goes on trial. The things he's charged with, he's like, he's basically like, I'm going to fucking die. Yeah. Ends up arguing most of his charges down to lesser sentences. (laughs) But ends up being sentenced to death for being broke. (laughs) Wow, damn. Which... Is a look in on maybe healthcare system. That's a, yeah, exactly. I mean, there there are, are some really interesting things politically, yeah, for sure. 
like I said, the entire point of the play is it's a political satirical play. Like, yeah, if, I don't remember if he actually ends up getting executed by the end of the play because that's right towards the end of the play anyway. Mm-hmm. But the whole point is, is that it doesn't matter what he just argued or anything. This whole system that they just set up is causing the entire city to fall into ruin by the end of the play anyway. Yeah, which is why it's the rise and fall of Mahogany City. That makes perfect sense, too. Using lines like that are not unintentional. <laughs> they have a purpose. I think that's pretty interesting because it has a unique story attached to it, too. Just that line, that refrain. <laughs> that's really cool. But then, like I said, with the hurricane wiping out their enemies, so they think yeah. that they're good to go the storm wiping away yeah that's just like another huge metaphor and allegory back to this tale right using that refrain to tell this tale and i knew all of that just because i love the song mac the knife that's pretty just awesome got stoned and went on a deep fucking so, wikipedia dive one night no i think that's that's the cool thing about doing these reviews in my opinion is learning all these neat things that people put in there there's purpose behind it and It's like, wow, I mean, not only are we doing our research, I mean, (laughs) a little bit, but these people are doing huge research to put in a fucking film so we can dissect it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's the enjoyment I get out of it, too, is like learning these kind of things. I think it's really clever. It at least makes me appreciate it a lot more, too. But yeah, anyway, I was like, that that super jumped out at me. I was like, oh, oh, shit. Yeah. And it all sort of fit. I'm like, all right, I see what you're doing there, (laughs) Lars von Trier. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Maybe give uh, Brecht a little bit of writing credit there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get into it later on. He, he does mention stuff like that. All right. Yeah, that leads us right into Simple. This and one's kind of rough, too. It really honest. is. It's manipulating. An asshole. And you kind of see how abusive relationships work. Yeah. It's a very powerful statement, I guess. Speaking of that, like once you have a certain domain over somebody or a dominion over somebody... It can be abusive and verbally demeaning and narcissistic and, you know, and it's this is the way it gets carried out. He calls her simple. She's got a name, but he's demeaning to her. And it is. It's a control thing, you know, mm-hmm. abuse of power. When he comes over, he's already kind of demeaning her. And he says, you know, you got great tits. And then they start talking about, let's see, he tells her, he's like, yeah, I've killed 60 people. And she thinks he's joking. He's like, yeah, I killed 61 people. And she's like, hold on, wait a minute. He's like, you just said 60. He said, have you ever heard of the term updated? <laughs> anyway, uh, what he does is he tells her to get either a black or a red pen. And he winds up, you know, drawing the circles around it. And I was like, there are a lot of moments of foreshadow in this moment. This is a huge one. But mm-hmm. she does. she's just like, you're fucking weird. And then she goes down. And this is another thing that plays into, like, the apathy and people not really giving a fuck or not caring enough. It's... She goes down there and, and confronts the cop. She's like, my friend is acting strange. He's telling me he's a killer and all this crazy shit. And he's like, have you been drinking? So he's already dismissing her. I think A, for being a woman, mm-hmm. but B, for being drinking. And then Jack comes down there and he's like, everything this woman has said is true. I've been a horrible person to her. And then he's fake emotion, you know, like crying, kind of feeling down on himself. And the cop drives away. He's like, you know, I can't tell you that you can't drink, but you guys need to go upstairs. And then he fucks off. <laughs> yeah. You're like, uh-oh, because that's not good. What it amounts to is when they do go back upstairs, it seems like he's passed out. She's going to call to get him some pills, and she notices the line has been cut. And then as soon as she gets to the door, he's up, and she's fucked. <laughs> 
I mean, that's basically what happens. He binds her with the telephone they used earlier in their little, you know, mm-hmm. the little exchange. That was kind of cute. It was cute. It really was. It's smooth which, on his part. I was about to say, which makes it all the more sinister in context. But. Oh, no doubt. It's super sinister because of his motives. And he uses that against her once again, because that's what he ties her up with is the cord from that phone, red phone on top of it. And he makes her pick out one of three knives. I mean, he he doesn't make her pick them out. He coerces her, <laughs> mm. makes her shake her head or yes or no. And he slices off one of her breasts. And you're like, damn, that's fucked. So it cuts before he starts to cut in the Yeah, there is a the cut. Rated. I mean, in, oh, the you're unrated, talking about, yeah, yeah. in the unrated, you get to see I mean, we see the slice it. But I mean, there's a cut between her and the whatever they use is what I'm getting at. But I know you're saying they cut that in the rated version. Right. You don't see it slice in. Gotcha. Her. It cuts right before. Okay. It's obvious what he's about to do, but... But you don't see it. You don't yeah. actually see it. Yeah, I mean, we see her breast get sliced open. Um, I was reading, too, and this is pretty neat, and I think you already know this with Alan Moore and From Hell. It's like they were using a little bit of, like, the Jack the Ripper, mm. you know, with prostitutes mm. or whatever, slicing of the breast and all that shit. So there's a little bit of an homage there. But what he does is he goes back down there. There's a cop fucking with somebody else in the alleyway. I told you not to be here. And he slaps the tit on the windshield wiper and then walks away. And you're like, damn, that's fucked up. Once again, it's just, you know, he's getting away with impunity. Like, he's doing all these things, even confessing that he's going to do this shit. Man, it's so weird. I never thought that I would end up getting this political on the fucking podcast. But, like, all of his actions throughout this entire incident... When he's first off like, well, you got a nice rack and shit. Yeah. It's just like, well, president pussy grabber. (laughs) Yeah. And then... Incels, you could say. Yeah, a little bit of that. And then you get into, he's able to kill her the way he wants to because through all of his previous actions, he's created a, a situation where it's just more noise. Yeah. Which is how most politicians, especially crooked ones, push through policy. That's God. part of the fucking right-wing playbook. Yeah, I mean... Is to create a lot of noise so that you don't know which... Right. They're, they're all important, but it exactly. makes it so you can't focus on any single one of them. It makes sense. It's like what they say, the uh, the ones who don't bark don't get fed. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. He goes up to the fucking cop. He's like, I am, you know, everything she's saying is true. Like, kill a man on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't matter. Yeah. And then in the end, the police is busy while he gets away with it because they're talking to a black man for being outside. Right. For being black in public. It makes complete sense when it's being played out in front of us, right? Mm-hmm. And we've already, you've mentioned it several times. Yeah, this is another social commentary, political commentary. And I was just like, whoa, this is a really fucked up scene to go that deep. Right. I, I think there's, there's a little bit too with, you could, you could say like this too, right? Is the white man sticking up for the white man? Like the cop notices, is like, oh, it's a white relationship, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to keep his woman in check. He's like, hey, I'm not going to fuck with this guy. I'm just you guys go upstairs. I'm going to fuck off. And like this never happened. But like you were saying, it's he'd much rather be harassing the black guy in the alley than actually paying attention to the fucking killer right in front of him. That slaps a fucking tit on this <laughs> in plain sight, dude. Yeah. So I think that's a perfect way of analyzing that section too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's heavy, man. This is where it gets into, I think, more of like that self-deprecating, maybe even a self-analysis. I think it's kind of telling, in a sense, too, is Jack and Berger discussing why he chooses to showcase stupid women as his victims in these vignettes. And he's like, he's like, you know, I've killed 
men too and children, of course. But he says he thinks that women are easier to work with. He says they're more cooperative, mm-hmm. you know. And then emerges like you mean they're easier to murder, right? Quit fucking with your words. Exactly. And then he gets into this discussion about once again the tiger and the lamb, and with religion, you know, he's like. Mm-hmm. He says, religion has ruined human beings because gods teach people to deny the tiger in themselves, and it turns us into, like, shameful slaves. He's, once again, like, using that analogy, but reading it totally wrong because, he, you know, he's not a tiger. <laughs> you can't justify what you're doing because of the action of something else. Right. You know? But then it gets into another conversation about putrefaction of the corpses, right? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And this is another one of those parts where he's likening himself to nature. Yeah, absolutely. It's like part of, yeah, it's a part of nature. It's not necessarily good nor evil. It's, it is what it is. Uh, he says the ultimate goal for the human being is not prior to death, but after death. And uh, this is where he gets into the decomposition of grapes into wines, uh, wine desserts. And uh, he talks about frost, dehydration, but the most important one is the noble rot because of how he equates it to mass genocide and, and how he is, finds and, art in murder. And and he's comparing himself as well as like Hitler and Pol Pot. The value of icons is what he equates it to, yeah. To the noble rot. Yeah. And he's saying he's amongst You them. antichrist. <laughs> he tells him, like, damn, that's fucked up. There's a part before he starts getting that heavy with it where mm-hmm. he's basically just saying how necessary it is. Yeah. And I'm like, him and Leslie Vernon would get along a little bit. It's pretty interesting. Just because that same weird little philosophy is espoused, albeit in a comedic manner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, yeah, it makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just a little bit. I think even he'd be like, yo, dude. I'm good. <laughs> I ain't about that life. Yeah, no, 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 no. No, hell no. What I, I thought was interesting when he, he's discussing the value of icons, and uh, it's a commentary, too, about, like, structures and buildings lasting. He was talking about how – I think we talked a little bit about this in Suspiria with the use of German, you know, Nazi Germany, but they were using, like, Greek styles of column building and structure yeah. building and shit like that. Because they were icons. They were something built to last. They represented something. And then he's also talking about the Stuka siren, the airplane, and it's perfect. And Because of what, its psychological right, aspect. It's built psychological in. warfare. It's like it's an icon. You knew when you heard that sound what it meant. You know, it's something that lasted. I mean that's when he equates it to mass killers and you see all those stock footage of just bodies getting dumped and you're like, Jesus Christ. The noble rod. <laughs> So this is one of the parts where I think it ties back into some of the discussion on the nature of art. Mm -hmm. Because he then, he ends it, I think, with the soul is reason, body is art. And art is icons. Yep. And if you keep him in line with sort of the idea of watch what someone does, not what he says, which is kind of the Matt Dillon thing. Yeah, like yeah. he's saying all these things, but look at what he's actually doing. Uh-huh. But you apply that instead to art because Von Trier is laying himself across being an artist yeah. in a metatextual way at this point. <laughs> Absolutely. Then he's basically saying, don't think I'm a bad person because I made antichrist. Look at what I actually do. Yeah. Which is mostly just like, lay around my fucking house depressed like <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point 
knowing that, don't right. think I'm a bad person because I made this movie. And that Some even goes back to the on. very first line, uh, or one of the very first lines, where he kind of acknowledges, like, not everything I say is going to be of great rhetorical quality, but I'm still saying it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like when you have these bodies of work, right, and you're trying to analyze yourself i suppose and you, mm-hmm. you know it's you're right it's like just because you put these these themes and these subject matter into this film that you know like you're saying or like i was saying too is just because i watch these kind of films doesn't mean i want to go out and see that in real life like i do right. other things man yeah <laughs> you know one doesn't equate to the other necessarily and it's also from that line for me though that this movie actually ends up ending with hope in a way yeah. Even for as bleak as the rest of this movie is, because it kind of fits into like, you're right, nature doesn't care. But beyond that, beyond what nature is simply doing, the soul is reason, which means if we put our attention to something, then something can still happen. You know what I mean? Like, we can still affect something at least right. around ourselves, which yeah. is a point that Matt Dillon is also unfortunately making. <laughs> And that ties with Virgil in Inferno, the Divine Comedy, Purgatorio, all that. Dante gets to Purgatory partially because Virgil goes with him. In this story, and we're going to jump ahead just for a second so I can tie all this point together. Yeah, yeah. Virgil is reason. He's the soul of reason, right? Mm -hmm. Matt Dillon keeps comparing himself to nature, which is indifferent and evil and everything's gonna fucking die anyway but virgil unlike with dante who chooses to go with him being the soul of reason chooses not to follow and just tells him fine you can do what you're going to do and he ends up being condemned for sure to hell Mm -hmm. in a very classical manner yeah as a true condemnation of his character throughout this so Virgil being reason against Matt's nature, reason, if it chooses to notice these things as they're going on, can triumph over them happening, which is a bit of hope for the very end of the movie. No, it is. That's kind of the message, too, is, you know, in the face of reason, what are are you going to do? God, I'm fucking stoned. I really hope that all makes sense when you listen to it later. <laughs> no, I, I, I know exactly. I, I see what you're getting at, you know, and, and I think that's the point of this film too. It's, I mean, I mean, it's weird using a serial killer, of course, as a as an expression to analyze yourself, you know, using mm-hmm. a horror theme, but uh, you know, as a critique maybe of your own self, and you know, like I said, being self-deprecating, and you're analyzing your ego, you're analyzing your bodies of work against criticism and, you know, all these nuances in between. And it's, it's heavy, especially when you're using Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy, stuff like that, the Ennead, and mm-hmm. all these other references. We, we already mentioned there's several of them, man. Art pieces and uh, Glenn Gould with the piano throughout, you know. You could tell he had some kind of OCD yeah. or some kind of tick. That's why I think it was clever using him, too, is like that's what he represents as art. It's like that guy makes these great pieces of work, but you know he's not all the way there. <laughs> and then I thought it was really telling to have it go straight from the Nazi imagery mm-hmm. into him abducting a black man. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you say it's another one of those social commentaries, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, on top, he's a military man. So there's, that's disrespectful already, as mm-hmm. is. I mean, you know, that's the kind of double whammy. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know. Well, before that, let me let me explain this too because I thought okay, this was yeah. kind of interesting. During their exchange with the icons and stuff, you know, he talks about the noble rot. They start to speak about, and Virgil points this out. He said, even in was it Buchenwald, the concentration camp, he talks about the oak tree, not any oak tree. It was a particular oak tree and whatnot. But he says that's where Goethe wrote some of his famous works. Oh, right, right. And I thought, I was like, that's really interesting. Because in, in defiance or maybe in the face of this atrocity, there is still something beautiful that happened there. And it's iconic. That's another form of icon that transcends the atrocity. Perhaps could. Because he talks about that was like, I think that's where Faust was written. Or like supposedly where Faust was written. I was like, that's interesting too. Because another <laughs> symbolism of icon that... Matt Dillon's character uses is the other half of Simple's breast as a oh that's coin right yeah. it's like that's fucked up man that leads into like the abduction right we get Jeremy Davies character looks like he's selling him some ammo I do want to say that's a part where Matt Dillon almost even admits him being a hypocrite at times because he's like yeah. I just rambled on about this, about icons and stuff, yet I kept this trophy or something like that. Right. Just I can't remember novelty. his exact point at that point. I don't think it was necessarily about icons, but he's like, I just made all these points, but I decided to do this anyway. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> Make use of it. All right. So that's what I started writing down. He's got a cuffed military man. He's walking into the freezer where he's already got these other guys chained up to like this pipe. It's like this setup where they got their chins bearing down on the pipe. And it's fucked up because of what we learn, what he wants to do with that. Yeah. At this point, Recreate. he's directly recreating shit from fucking... Yeah, Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany. He's like, yeah, they were conducting experiments. They wanted to see, because they were running low on ammo, how many people they could kill, like one-shot kills successively with one bullet. And that's what he wanted to do, recreate that using a full metal jacket. And it gets interrupted because the military man points out, it's like, there's a misunderstanding. That's not a full metal jacket. Oh, boy, you ain't got an FMJ there. Nope. And he starts to lose his shit, Jack, that is, and goes back and confronts Al, which is Jeremy Davies' character. He's like, Al, what the fuck is this? I've been shopping here forever. And he's like, yeah, the box. I can see that's not the rounds. But he tries to give him store policy and excuses. (sighs) Poor guy. So well acted. It really is. You feel bad. That's something that's realistic, too. Yeah. Because the guy is super aggressive now. I demand this. I demand that. I'm a regular. I'm, we've heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's uh, like entitlement, in a sense. You know who the fuck I am. I shop here all the time. So fucking well acted. I love that scene. It's good. It's really good. Jack gets pissed off. Jeremy's uh, character calls the cops or whatever mm-hmm. he does. Jack drives off. He runs into a ditch a little bit, spins out. He's like, fuck it. He runs over to SP's because that's where he wants to get the full metal jacket. It's but like, the guy holds SP him up. Got ammo. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's like, fucking Alf. <laughs> Don't give me full metal jacket. I just want one. But he holds him up. He's like, uh, he's like, I got you, Jack. He's like, I know what you did. He's like, what? He, he tells him that the cops came by to Al's and questioned him too. He's like, we know what you did. He accuses him of like burglarizing the place. Like, why are they on him for burglary? Yeah, I don't know exactly what that... Or do you think they just weren't telling them? Probably. Yeah, there's there's something heavier. He doesn't want to admit that, maybe. Like, these guys might have been in, on it with him, but they knew what maybe his uh, true intentions were after a bit. Anyway, the whole point of that is Matt Dillon is playing into the part where he's uh, trying to lull or trying to drop that guy's guard by, like, you hey, remember, you're one of my best friends, man. Remember we tracked down that eight-point... And you shot it. And you're like, yeah, it did come over my territory. 
He's like, uh, you're starting to hurt my feelings, man. He's like, can you put that gun down or away from me? He drops his guard, thanks him, and shanks him. <laughs> so, difference between the versions. The uh, rated version, he slams it home, and it cuts away. Oh, so you don't see that? Ah. Nope. Which, that's fucking dope. <laughs> okay, so we, it cuts out from that. We get the sirens. So, oh, he goes in and gets the full metal jacket. We already know that. But mm-hmm. you hear the cop sirens, and the cop pulls in, and... He goes in, he's like, yeah, you got him, SP, you finally got Jack. And he's like, uh, he's like I'll take care of the rest, and no, no, you're not. <laughs> he gets gunned down, and then he takes off with the squad car all the way back to Prospect, to the walk-in freezer, leaves that bitch on. <laughs> Just leaves it going. Yep, I'm like, he wants to get caught. Okay, so once he gets back down there, he's trying to get it set up, mm-hmm. and he needs to get further back. Yeah, he can't sight it properly. This is the one thing I ran into... And for all this other bullshit I've been spouting throughout all this episode, I don't have anything for... What the fuck did the door represent? I read a little bit into it. I mean, take it for what it's worth. I think there's some valid arguments, some validity in it. It's where he can't get that part open, right? Mm -hmm. You could say that that whole walk-in freezer is kind of a metaphor, you know, for his mind. What he's doing in it is cold, is remorseless, it's... You know, it's just what he's doing, his ego and all that shit. And Virgil's back there in the reasoning part of his brain, the logic part. I mean, not logic, but the, like I said, the reasoning, right? It's beyond the ego. But that's also, too, where you could say that's where his demise is, you know, where he's he probably got shot or something happened. He might have frozen. I've seen different arguments for that because we don't really know exactly how he died. Mm-hmm. We just know he's... He's going to hell. So this could be dead. like what's running through his mind, too, as he's dying as well. He's like playing out these thoughts or whatever. Uh, so you could say that part was like him compartmentalizing things or different parts of his mind. Well, okay. So if we skip ahead just a little bit, this is all happening. He might be dead. He also finally got this door open that he was never able to before, which is obviously extremely metaphorical, but we're not right. entirely 100%, 100% yeah. sure for what. I think it also opens up the possibility that he's just had a complete mental break yeah and this conversation with virgil is essentially his confessions as he's going through a trial process which to him is i could see that that and then subsequently rotting in his cell is his hell i could see yeah man that's that's a good way of saying that i i mean i think you could attribute it a little bit too with playing with that it's like maybe him having a therapy session too like mm-hmm. using these different metaphors of like if i were a killer if you know we all have these certain I think he's urges most likely dead but i think that, it opens yeah. up this no it does it opens up dialogue because of these things that you can attribute it to it as well as like a metaphor or, you know something larger than in just this and now he's essentially living in a house of his victims which would be his jail cell right makes perfect sense man that's kind of a fucked up, disturbing scene. I want to say, just from a horror movie standpoint, it's the awesome. the victim house is one of the coolest things I've ever found. It seen. is, but I'm like, I, you start looking at it, he's like, I was trying to imagine, not that you should, but what that would really look like if you stacked up corpses like that into that. I'm like, that is so disturbing, man. It's so yeah. fucked up. But this, it works in this. This is, it's awesome. <laughs> That's where he makes his escape. His escape. Also, I loved. The prompting of the building of that house when Virgil's asking him, like... About his house. What about the house? You were building... We haven't even talked about the house. He's been building a house all this time. Right, the whole time. um, Because he's an architect, engineer. Honestly, the house 
because the architecture I first pointed out as being trickle down economics essentially. Yeah, you could say that like the American dream you're when he want to build started, your own home and when do all he this first stuff. started talking about the house, the architecture early on and his going higher with less material has left him a uh, frame with no walls. Yeah, good point. Which were maybe seeing with one in four people being unemployed or whatever the fucking number is right now. Wow, yeah, it's very poignant. Oh. What happens when you put stress on late-stage capitalism? Yeah, dude. It's a house with no walls. That's right. Maybe a good idea. I'm not, I'm not, I will actually say that for all this political bullshit I've been spouting, yeah. I like the idea of some of the tenets of capitalism when it's on an even playing field. Right. It just hasn't been an even playing field. No, no, field no. The, the scales have been tipped for as long as we've been alive. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit longer than that, too. Much longer. But yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. When it's when the, the scales are even, then yeah, the, you're going to have equal distribution throughout. You know, everybody's. When you gonna, have an equal chance, then I kind of like some right. of the idea Everybody of competing has, yeah, in. Equal footing. Yeah, equal opportunity, what have you. But you don't have that. No. And the I, system I, has then been rigged further in that favor. No, I, I think your use of, of how this film plays out and knowing that, you know, Von Trier is a bit of a commentary person as is, and he's not afraid to express it, it makes sense. This is a criticism, too, of that time period and what we're experiencing now because of a result of all that shit. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> the American dream is a fallacy right now as is. Mm-hmm. And it's suckering people left and right, and it's taking advantage of it. Just how this film's, you know, taking advantage of its victims and what, yeah, whatnot. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's man, it's, it's heavy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's no <laughs> doubt about that. That being said, I also thought that that fucking frame house was fucking beautiful, and I hope they left it there as just like a standing <sighs> art piece. I know, man. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I recently went to some standing art pieces just in our state. We yeah only two hours away have sculpture in the wild where it's a, a park with these giant art pieces out in nature some of which you can go into like there was like That's a house awesome. thing i went into and shit and like i'm like this would be perfect there <laughs> fucking bring that there lars montrier <laughs> <laughs> yeah you bring never know this to montana <laughs> i want to go in the house <laughs> that'd be awesome man but you've already mentioned it. this whole last part of the film is basically the divine comedy dante's inferno all that stuff and which is cool. I like a lot of the shots that you see in this section. Right. I did, too. The Descent, Catabasis, yeah. got a little bit more boring for me, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it's it just, plays a little bit. It plays out very classically. It does. Especially at the end. I did kind of like, all this time, Dylan's been telling this story, and he's been making sure to portray himself as smarter than all these Mr. His victims. He's Mr. Yeah. Sophistication. He's almost admitted to his own ego. And then I like how Virgil was kind of being down low, like kind of shady towards him because <laughs> he makes sure that he goes by the Elysian fields, Yep, which is the like one good memory that Jack has carried with him, carried with him. Yeah. And to quote fucking Neil Gaiman from the Sandman, like what's the tortures of hell without the hope of heaven? If he's just there, yeah, then I mean, he's just there. It's, it makes absolute sense because, uh, you know, when you look at that, you know, the Elysian fields and all that stuff, that's paradise. That's what paradise is. But hell doesn't have any meaning unless there's something better. A hope. Right, right, right. And so he that's, leads them by that. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it is. It's clever. It's fucked up. I mean, it's not fucked up, but 
he's playing with them. He's toying with them. He's like, yeah, we don't have access here. And this is the one time, I think, in the entire film where Jack has a moment of remorse a little bit or, like, mm-hmm. empathy or whatever. Or just, you know, he's thinking or having flashbacks of all the murders he's done or the stuff that we saw, the incidences. Oh, uh, before that, they recreate... Fuck, I wish I would have written down the painting. and it's, it's an actual painting. Oh, yeah, yeah, I wrote that down. Do you have it? The painting is La Barque de Dante. It's by uh, Eugène Delacroix. And I know it was inspired by something else, too. But, yeah, when they're on the boat. So, I felt like that was tying into the themes of what is art. Mm-hmm. Because I thought it was kind of on Trier saying, like, what's the difference between this and what I've been showing you for the past two hours? In both cases, it's a man being delivered to hell. I think that's a, a good point, too. You know, if you're going to criticize me, you have to also be aware or, or at least acknowledge this, too. Mm-hmm. But you call it art. Yeah, this what, is what glorifying it? it. Right. But it's, you know. And I was showing it in its dirty realness. Right, right, right. In a way where you can truly demonize this person. I think something that's very valuable for a lot of people who might lose sight of this. <laughs> but, you know, art is very subjective. Mm-hmm. There's no absolute truth, I suppose, that you can attach to it. So, you know, and it's also about perception, too, and experience and all that stuff. But I think that's the most important lesson, or at least idea i think maybe perhaps behind this is you know what you might find distasteful so what <laughs> it's still a piece of art and you know as it is right but then i thought there was one other thing towards the end i couldn't decide if it was virgil throwing shade or if it was him being accurate or why not both yeah, yeah. um and like we said like Dylan's been trying to rate himself amongst the worst of the worst in history. Yeah. And he's pretty much just a force of nature. And Virgil brings him all the way to the bottom, and he's like, so this is the bottom. I just wanted to make sure you saw it. You're, I'm yeah. actually bringing you a couple it's what he, He's like, yeah, I understand that you're a man who wants to see everything. Mm-hmm. So here, here we are. Not only is this everything... But there's something on the other side even, that you're never going to be able to see that even I don't know. Right. It existed before uh, even before me, long mm-hmm. before him. And I thought that was an interesting point, too, because you could say that was the bridge that connected both, right? Heaven and hell or what have mm-hmm. you, that idea of that. But that bridge has been broken a long time ago. <laughs> of course, he's like, no, fucking... And yeah. I already went into all that. Like, right, right, right. Uh, but the reason I can't decide if it's him throwing shade because he's being like, you're also not going to go here. You're actually going up there because you're not quite these guys. Yeah. You, there's a couple other floors above. But because they were slightly basing it on Dante's Inferno, especially with the use of Virgil, he could just be accurate because the third round of the seventh circle, which would be a couple floors up mm-hmm. from where they're at, is for people who committed sins against God, art, and nature. Yeah, that's like, that's one of my last notes, too, is like when you fall into that, that's what it represents is, you know, you're committing atrocities or whatnot against God and all that stuff. It's reserved for the most vile. Lucifer is going to punish you down there. And that's the thing, because that's where they kind of break from the Dante model, because like where Lucifer's at is a frozen lake. Yeah. I've read Inferno like three times, but it's been about ten years now. Uh, however, I actually have a piece of art inspired by the last cantos of Inferno up on the wall, except it replaces Lucifer with 8-bit characters. And, <laughs> yeah, Dante is replaced by Mario, and yeah, Virgil yeah. is a shy guy. That's awesome, man. That's so funny. <laughs> it's, it's dope. It's right over here. Yeah, yeah. Right, right outside the door. So. <laughs> right out here. <laughs> 
This is one of the things I'm like, oh yeah, this is like right the fuck up my alley because I dig me some Inferno anyway. So yeah. So all right, right before this is, I mean, this is for me. This is my last little take here. Is uh, is the very last shot that we get is actually a negative exposure. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that was that's what I was getting at earlier, where he he said he was fascinated with the dark light, and that's what kind of what we get at the end. <laughs> he fell right into the dark light. He made me think about dark light in negatives and i find them a little bit fascinating too now just because he made me think about it but not for the same reason as him i just find it fascinating that they appear that way and yet the light they're casting is still responsible for the rest of the features that you're making out on the negative yeah it's wild i mean yeah exactly which is a wild thought that gets into another form of art photography and yeah and exposures which i think that's really cool that's another little nerdy thing i think he's throwing in there but I don't find it fascinating for the same No, not for that acting. same quality. No, no, no. <laughs> I, uh, I, I would hope not to look at, you know, or think of looking at light bulbs as something demonic. I think that's, but I, mean, I, I understand what he's saying, but I don't agree with it. So now I guess I just like to apologize because to you, because I'm sure we just lost half our audience for all my political talk. No, no, no. All right. For the film's sake, too, if you're going to be that sensitive, you also have to be able to defend your stance, right, mm-hmm. for that. And that's kind of what this film was, you know. It was, it was maybe even a, a personal exchange, you know, using Virgil, like you are saying, as uh, the metaphor for the reasoning part of the brain and Jack as more like the lizard brain, I suppose. Just going through, just following what he considers nature. You know, it's indifferent. Mm-hmm. So why not just do what I want to do? It's going to be indifferent anyway. We all die in the end anyway. It's nihilism is what it is. So you could say that, like I said, that whole thing is maybe it's his exchange between himself. So it's a way of trying to use reason in the face of, you know, something else that you might do to your detriment or other people's detriment, which gets back into social commentaries. It's not just about you. It's about something more than you Mm -hmm. above yourself. You could say that's maybe a little bit of a hopeful statement, a powerful statement, too, is it's not just about you. There's more than just you out there and me and you. It's about the collective, Mm -hmm. you know, what's good for the whole. Anyhow, that's kind of what I got out of it. And it's it's a self-analysis. It's a unique way of using pieces of art to make arguments on both sides of the aisle. It's just a really good fucked up serial killer story. It really is. It's it's heavy, man. It really is. And that's the thing I do appreciate about his work. Yeah. And like we're no experts. We do our homework, but I'm sure there's a lot of things that we're still missing. And but that's okay. That's what I like about these styles of film. I'm sure there's symbolism I'm, I'm I'm missing. I haven't figured out any reason why the one watermill was frozen. And why it held on that. I know what you're saying. Uh, that, that scene, they said that, um, I've seen the film, of course, too, because the next shot that happens after it is that cabin when they're up on top, mm-hmm. like after they come out of the cave and they're looking down at the forest below and the cabin. That cabin is very similar to the cabin they use in Antichrist. Okay. So maybe that's, he's just holding on that. Because the next shot you get Being is like, Yo. them on ladders. Like It looks like they're descending ladders. But that's also a, a shot, I think, in uh, Antichrist, too. Yeah, I think it represents a tree. Okay. Yeah, from Antichrist. So I think he's still using some of his art in this particular sequences. Because he does that Antichrist in flashback sequences. Antichrist is probably going to be what I watch next. It's, it's good. <laughs> it's worth the watch. It's heavy, though, I'll say that. I've heard that behind the scenes, he said that Willem Dafoe has an awkwardly large penis. <laughs> he used the word awkwardly large. <laughs> You fucker of me lobster. <laughs> Tail, that is. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, man, it, it, these kind of films I think are really fun, especially when they're high art like this. It's not everybody's cup of tea, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm finding I can appreciate this because, you know, there's all these layers. It's like an onion. Once you peel back one, there's another layer, and you might get lost in that layer and not realize there's other layers below it. Right. You know, and but that's the fun part. And I think it was a good idea that you mentioned earlier. If, if there are things that we're missing or if you have different interpretations, let us know because this is a really interesting film to do that with. I agree. I agree. Did some of when he was talking about rot just make you think of their Totus King? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the fact, too, that a lot of the terminology is German as well. Yeah. You know, it definitely helps. <laughs> that's true. That's true. This would make a good companion piece, Der Todes King, if you just wanted to have a long yeah. day of super arty, yeah, art house, bleak death shit. But there this is would a little also, bit of hope in it too. Honestly, this would also make a good part of a three piece with Henry and Maniac. Oh, absolutely, man! Because this is more commentary on that kind of stuff. Which and I think just I, having a serial killer kind of kill at will too. <laughs> I think for as much as a bad rap as horror tends to get from people who aren't fans of the genre, man, there's so many intellectual films that go beyond just, you know, the the typical gore and all the killing Mm -hmm. and whatnot. It's like there's so much to say about how we observe the the world around us and then to put it into a film that on the surface is, you know, serial killer. But no, it's more than that. It's a lot more than that. And you should take the time to at least explore it a little bit. That's right. You might come away a fan. Agreed. Fuck, this was fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I know we <laughs> jibber-jabbered a lot, but it, like we were saying earlier, there's no way we could dedicate... I mean, we could, but who'd want to listen to 10 hours of this? <laughs> I will say, I'm also extremely proud of myself, because this yeah. might be the best notes that I've ever taken for a fucking movie. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. Yeah, <laughs> this I, really actually kept me on track for once, so... You can confirm this with Jeff. Is I told him last night, I was like, I'm really curious to, to see and hear what you had to say about this film because of what he and I discussed, but of course what you and I discussed. So I'm happy that, that you enjoy this film. You know, I think you did a good job with your homework for sure, man. You brought up some really cool points. And I wasn't really thinking of, about the political statements per se, but uh, man, yeah, ramp it throughout. Yeah. So that's something else I came away with just talking to you about that. Yeah, uh Rewatch it with that in mind, wow. and I think it'll really pop. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, though. <laughs> I don't think I'm just projecting it based on like. No, 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 no. And based I, on what know, Von Trier said, I, I'm not that gullible either. So <laughs> there's that. I don't think I'm just projecting it, but. No, I think that's a uh, good way of there. reading that. Yeah. Shit, we haven't decided exactly what we're doing next week yet, but we're kind of leaning towards creature features. Yeah, we've got some inklings toward that. So that will be fun. And in order to listen to us do that. <laughs> Please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. That would be super awesome. Also, if you could rate and review, that also is awesome because the whole world is run on algorithms and, you know. We like to be in them. That's right. I'm all up in them <laughs> algorithm. You can head over to our website, friedsquirms.com. While you're there, you can check out our entire back catalog or contact us through the website or at squirmcast.gmail.com. While at the website, you can click the links up at the top. We are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. Go check out the other shows yeah. on the site. Listen to me talk about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery. Listen to my co-host there talk about war philosophy and war gaming like 40K and Bellagarth and such over on the Art of War Gaming with more shows to come. Fucking COVID. We, they probably would have came already, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs>
We're all essential, though. So we are. We are. We're essential, and so are you. And with that in mind, too, like I said, if you have any suggestions, maybe some recommendations that you'd like for us to do, or once again, if you're a filmmaker, you have a film that needs some eyeballs, let us know. We like to watch those films too. Search for fried squirms across all the social medias. I've been trying to post a little bit more. I've been kind of successful with it. We're getting there. We're getting there. I'm getting used to this fucking social media biz. <laughs> I'm fucking starting to get on the edge of old and I'm not used to this bullshit anymore. <laughs> all you fucking kids and your yeah. goddamn viral Get off my sidewalk. In my day, <laughs> we had Hitler's downfall. <laughs> <laughs> Solid point. And long cat, son. Yeah, we had video cat. memes. Yeah, picture me. <laughs> I don't know. That's all I got, though. Yeah, likewise. I just, uh, like I said, I enjoyed this film. And I uh, can't recommend it enough if you enjoy Art House and commentaries. I agree. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fred Squirms. Out. out.